0: Before I began this particular practice of insight meditation and the exploration of Buddhism, I had been involved in a yogic path for quite a while. And before that, I had practiced a Christian form for a while, in a very personal way, not ever in a formal way, but in a quite deep, personal way. And as we all know the language is different from path to path. It varies quite dramatically. And when I first came to this particular path, I was somewhat shocked by the bluntness of the different words that are used. You know, people throw out the words greed, hatred, and delusion quite casually. whereas I had always taken them in a much heavier way. So, when I first bumped into Larry and began insight meditation, I was still living in a community with some people that I had been practicing yoga with. And I was attempting to separate from this community and move on to something else. In this community, there was a friend, a woman, that I had been very, very close to, a strong sisterly connection. And we were attempting to separate, and finding it very difficult to do so. So I was in a lot of pain. And I remember at one point, Larry saying to me something like, I'm so sorry to see that you're suffering. And I said, what? Suffering? I just hate her.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: it was quite simple. I, I didn't see that as suffering. And of course, in this practice, suffering is a, a word that we use quite frequently to mean a lot of different things. And so this is what I would like to reflect upon tonight, is suffering. Which, actually, this is quite a cheerful talk, believe it or not. (laughs) Because it doesn't stay with just suffering. It's talking about suffering and the way out of suffering. The word in Pali, which is the language that the Buddha's words were written down in, the word is dukkha. And as much as possible in this talk, I'm going to try to use that word. Suffering will most likely pop out because I'm, I'm very used to using it. But I would prefer to use the word dukkha because it means so many different things. It is such a subtle word. And to call it suffering is really just one aspect of a word that means something that is really quite profound. Dukkha means dissatisfaction on both a coarse level and the most subtle of levels. A definition of the word is suffering, which you'll see most most translations do use the word suffering, or dissatisfaction. You'll find that word also used quite a bit, unsatisfactory. It also means instability, things being unstable. It means uncertainty, an uncertainty in life, a sense that everything is, is not sure, is uncertain. It means a sense of fragility that this body and this mind and this world itself quite clearly are quite fragile. There's a fragility in life when we look not only deeply but quite superficially. We see that there is a certain fragility. It also means imperfection, a sense of things not being perfect. It means incompleteness, things not being totally complete. Maybe almost, but not totally. Maybe almost perfect, but not totally. So it's, it's very subtle. Okay. The word also means incapable of satisfying which is an interesting way to put it. Incapable of satisfying and incapable of fulfillment. So it applies to anything in life that is incapable of satisfying us, incapable of fulfilling us. As you can see, it's a very subtle and broad word. And it has three different aspects to it. The first aspect is what is called ordinary suffering, which is the suffering of being born, that it's painful to be born, the suffering of getting sick, the suffering of growing old, the suffering of dying. The kinds of suffering that all human beings are subject to, no one is not. So this kind of coarse level of dukkha physical dukkha. It also means mental and emotional dukkha, states of grief, states of despair, states of loss. Being with those that we may not want to hang around with, but we have to be with anyway. This can apply to people at work. This can apply to our own family. (laughs) It may with people that we may not want to be with. It also means not being with people that we want to be with. Being separated from those whom we may want to be with. Having longings and yearnings to be with certain people and not being able to be with those people. So it means this too. It means not getting what we want. Now, from moment to moment, we can see that we experience this many times, simply not getting what we want, and getting what we don't want often. This also applies to poverty in the world. It applies to injustice in the world. It applies to the inequality in this world, where some people are very rich and some people are very poor. It applies very much to interpersonal relationships when we are with those that we want to be with, how they just won't say what we want them to say. (laughs) We can have as many dialogues in our minds about what they should be saying, but very often they don't live up to our expectations. So, interpersonal relationships with those that we love, with those that we do want to be joined with, Okay, so let's say that someone here doesn't experience um, a lot of this kind of suffering. (laughs) Let's, Let's say that there's someone here who really is in a great relationship. You're with exactly the person that you want to be with, that you've dreamed about. And you are living exactly where you want to be living in the world, and you have exactly the the um, best house you could be living in. Um, It has everything you want in it. You have enough money. Um, You're able to do pretty much what you want to do. And, you know, is this true for anyone here? I wonder. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but this, we're just on one level of suffering here. This is just the level of suffering that's called ordinary suffering. But then, we can see how dukkha gets more and more subtle and more profound. Because even if this were true for any one of us in this room or in this world that forget about the part about death and sickness and old age, but just simply having all the worldly delights that we want, having all the worldly um, ways that we want to be happy um, having them, even if this were true, for any human being. Still, dukkha applies. Dukkha applies because the second level of dukkha is the dukkha of momentariness, the dukkha of impermanence, which means that everything is insubstantial. So, we have what we want. We are in the relationship we want to be in. We're in the house we want to be in. We have enough money, we can do what we want. And still, We have no idea about change in our life. We can just see this very simply with the impermanence of a good feeling. One has a good feeling, and it passes. And that's dukkha, the dukkha of change, the dukkha of impermanence, is the second level of dukkha. The third level of dukkha, which is the most subtle, is the dukkha of having a mind and a body, being attached to the mind and the body, experience. Having a solid sense of I, a solid sense of self, a sense of there being a solid entity that everything refers back to. This refers to our sense of separation, our sense of separation from experience, our sense of separation from ourselves, our sense of separation from one another and from the world. So it's this sense of a separate self, a sense of solidity, of everything referring back to me, to mine, to what I want, to what I don't want. This sense of ego is this, ser- this third level of dukkha. And um, I just want to give you the Pali words for these because of a reason which I'll tell you about in a second. This third aspect of dukkha is called samkara dukkha. And the dukkha of impermanence it's, is called viparinama dukkha. And the ordinary kind of dukkha is called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> it's worth giving the Pali to, to say that. <laughs> So, in our understanding of Dukkha, why is it so important? Why am I talking about this? Because most of this we know on some level. We're aware of difficulty, of suffering, of dissatisfaction in our life. The reason why it's so important, and the reason why it's so um, good to reflect and talk about these things, and. To understand this so deeply, is because it's the very starting point of our practice. It's the beginning of our whole entire practice. The recognition of dukkha is the beginning of the end of dukkha. It's the beginning of the total elimination of dukkha. The Buddha said, I teach dukkha and I teach the end of dukkha. Both are true. But he didn't just say, I teach the end of dukkha. He first said, I teach dukkha, and this is very significant because this is really what we want to understand and um, understand deeply more and more because it is our way out, it is a gateway. There is one thing, this is a quote by the Buddha, the not seeing of which keeps us unfree keeps us bound on this cyclic wheel of becoming. That one thing is the truth of dukkha. One who sees dukkha sees also the arising of dukkha, sees also the cessation of dukkha, and sees also the path leading to the cessation of dukkha. So clearly, the way to the cessation of dukkha is through healing and understanding dukkha as deeply as we possibly can on all three levels, on the ordinary level and on the very subtle level, which another word for this very subtle level is continuous dukkha because it's happening all the time. There is always a self-reference occurring unless we are awake and mindful. And if we don't catch that self-reference, then there is dukkha occurring. So, obviously, it's quite unconscious. Dukkha is happening all the time, and we're not aware of it. And this is what we first want to bring into consciousness, is to be aware of the levels and the heaviness of our experience. This is the only way it is possible to truly free and lighten the heart. The recognition of dukkha itself from moment to moment is the pathway out, is truly a direct path out. Merely the recognition from moment to moment. Now, the recognition means mindfulness, awareness. It means knowing what our experience is from moment to moment. With awareness, with mindfulness, we are aware of dukkha in its subtle form, as well as in its more coarse form. And it is, indeed, our pathway into the elimination of dukkha. (coughs) Understanding this is really important because it gives us energy to practice. And energy to practice, in a way, is is most of the path, is really having enough determination, gentle determination and energy to persevere. Perseverance is core, obviously, to our practice. If we can just persevere, I think everything just opens up on its own. But to persevere, one does have to have some understanding or faith, real faith, not, not belief faith, but real faith. And so understanding our dilemma, understanding our condition is obviously essential and important. The Buddha is sometimes talked about as a physician who can see what's wrong and can talk about how to cure what is wrong. Neither an optimistic physician who is saying, oh, nothing's wrong, no big deal, just continue on in the way that you are and everything will be just fine because then we see that it's not just fine at a certain point. And not a pessimistic physician who is just saying there is a problem and is not giving us any way out. The Buddha is seen as a realistic physician who is saying, yes, there is a problem. There is a problem. And there absolutely is a way out. There clearly is a way out. That we know more and more the more we practice, the deeper our practice goes, we know for ourselves, and not based on anyone else's experience. So in our understanding of dukkha, it does give us energy or effort to practice. And we're always using effort in some way or another anyway. I mean, always effort is part of our life. And so we might as well use it to in the right direction to try to come to happiness and to move away from dukkha. Uh, we're always having to put out effort. We get up, We put out effort just to get up in the morning. We're putting out effort all day long to become somebody, to become something, to improve ourselves, to be better in some way, to be better at our work, or to be better at our relationships, or to, to be better human beings. We're constantly trying to become, usually we're trying to become some ideal of something that we've heard was a good idea to become. (laughs) It's not even based on so much reality. There are cultural ideas about what is a good idea to, to be or become, and we're trying to do that. We're trying to become that. So, since effort is obviously being put out anyway in our life, we can choose. We can choose to continue to put out the kind of effort that is probably going to bring us more deeply into confusion, or we can choose to put out the kind of effort that truly can lead us to freedom and to happiness. And that's another reason why this understanding of dukkha is so essential in our practice. No matter how practiced, I'm sorry, no matter how deep our practice is, the understanding of dukkha can go even deeper It can go even deeper, because we can even just be hanging on by a thread. And that thread is non-recognition of our condition, non-recognition of our dilemma. So from the very beginning of our practice to years down the road in our practice, the understanding of dukkha continues, is something to continue to, to work with. You know, in in this culture, it's a funny thing. Um, sometimes it's seen as almost a, a moral problem if you're not real cheery and happy. Okay. You know, it's it's um, often seen as there's some being something wrong with you um, if you're not um, in a really good relationship or with somebody at least.
1: <laughs> you
0: know, tr- truly in this culture, nirvana is seen as being in a good relationship. <laughs> and the, the advertising is built up around that. We buy products to make ourselves um, perfect so that we can be in a relationship. And clearly, I mean, I hear about relationships all the time, and clearly uh, it's not nirvana. Clearly the the best of relationship is not nirvana, because the person is going to leave us at some point, and that's a reality. The person may not even want to leave us, but will die on us, or we will leave them at some point. So clearly it's still in the conditioned realm. But there is a myth in the society around um, something being wrong with one if one isn't happy. And perhaps, perhaps there is a little bit more understanding if there is some level of unhappiness or awareness of unhappiness when we look at the world and when we look within. Uh, Not a a morbid unhappiness or depression, but a recognition of unhappiness, a recognition of sorrow, a recognition of things not being quite right or at all right, perhaps this is a bit more sane than the expectation that one should be happy, based on oftentimes cultural assumptions about what one needs and has to have to be happy. So sometimes there can even be a sense of shame or guilt around not experiencing happiness. And perhaps this is something to look at in this exploration of dukkha. Actually, dukkha is a common bond. It's something that connects us to one another. It's something that unifies us with one another. And without the recognition of dukkha, there is separation. There is pity, sense of pity directed towards others. There is a sense of separation between me and you, and between myself and myself. The understanding of dukkha does bring us together. It is a common element in every human being's experience. Every human being's experience. Now we come here, and um, all of us experience a lot of dukkha in this situation. <laughs> you know, it's a setup for dukkha. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's a setup for uh, you know, for this, the coarse and the subtle kind of dukkha. Um, Ajahn Chah, who is a very wonderful Thai teacher, said something very helpful about this, being in the practice and experiencing dukkha. He said that there are two kinds of dukkha the dukkha that leads to more dukkha, and the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. (laughs) So clearly here, we are attempting to be with the dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. And when we're playing out certain things, um, trying to get happiness where it can't be found, that is the first kind of dukkha, the dukkha that leads us to more dukkha, that leads us to simply hopelessness and disappointment time after time again. And then he goes on to say, if you are not willing to face the second kind of dukkha, you will surely continue to experience the first. So this is why we're here too, because we are saying that there is a willingness on some level, not always being played out, but on some level, there is a willingness to experience our experience, which is the experience of dukkha. So, we need to encounter Dukkha in order to let go. We need to experience the heaviness of Dukkha in order to be able to let it down. We need to pick something up, find out it's heavy, find out it's hot in order to let it go, in order to let it, let it down. When we pick up a coal and we find out it's hot, we immediately let go. And this is our practice, is understanding more and more the heat and the heaviness of our experience without mindfulness, without awareness. Generally, what we do around dukkha is we try our, our most to avoid it. We try our most to distract ourselves and to get around it and to get away from it and to push it away, which of course is a natural response. This is not dumb, this is a really natural natural human response to try and avoid and get around. It just doesn't work. And that is what the teaching is saying, is it's not practical. It doesn't work. It's not the way out. It seems like it should work, but it doesn't. And so it's understanding this, that our best efforts to avoid and get away from and push away are really perpetuating. They're very exhausting. They're very tiring on some level. And they keep dukkha rolling. They keep dukkha going. One way that we very much avoid dukkha is by being lost in blame. By being lost in blaming another for what it is that is happening or by being lost in self-blame, blaming ourselves for whatever it is that is happening. This is a very predominant way in our practice very much that we slide off of the experience. We kind of slip off of the experience, and it actually is an avoidance. And perhaps this is helpful for us to see that in getting lost and thinking, that blame is helpful at all. Thinking that blaming another or thinking that blaming ourselves is at all going to get us out of dukkha. This is not true. And it actually is a way of slipping off and getting lost in a certain (coughs) defensive posture. Whether it's blame of ourselves or whether it's blame of another, it's the same thing. And it's a very common way that we try to avoid the feeling of whatever it may be. Whatever it is that may be happening. Sadness, or loneliness, or anger, whatever it may be. Oftentimes we slip off into blame. And so simply just seeing this is very helpful. Blame is going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it when it just arises in the heart, in the mind. But when we notice it happening, we can also notice that it's not useful, that it's not something to encourage. It's not something to perpetuate because it is not the way out. Again, whether it's of ourselves or whether it's of another. It simply takes us away from the target. It simply takes us away from what we are experiencing in the moment. And so oftentimes just to see we've gotten lost in blame, we've gotten lost in self-judgment, we've gotten lost in thinking another is responsible for our pain. Simply just to see that can help us to come back, can help us to not encourage this way of thinking. We can see that with dukkha, the way out is the way in. I'm sorry, the way in <laughs> is the way out? <laughs> no, the way out is the way in. Yeah, <laughs> I had it right the first time. <laughs> the pathway out is by directly going into. And what this means in a, in a very practical way is welcoming, receiving, opening to whatever our experience is. We don't need to label our experience. We don't need to say, Dukkha, 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 Dukkha from moment to moment. We can simply see what our experience is and know it. And in this, we are bearing with whatever it is that's happening. And again, on the subtlest of levels, Dukkha is happening. But we can bear with and stay with, stay still, in the midst of our experience. So this is a very practical way of being with dukkha, is simply to allow for the experience to be without doing anything about it, applying awareness and mindfulness, knowing what our experience is. That's it. We don't have to do anything. Actually, this, this thinking that we have to do Oftentimes takes us off the target too because mindfulness is simply knowing what our experience is. Right now, we're working very much with the breathing, and we will continue to do so throughout the day tomorrow to be with the breath in an exclusive way. Being with the breath is really preparation for being with whatever our experience is so it is great preparation for being with dukkha it is helping the mind to stay steady to stay on in the face of whatever it is that is occurring without exception so it's essential heart training In this practice there's not a whole lot that one has to know one really only wants to know what one's experience is. basically one wants to see that the usual ways that we try to find happiness aren't working which we already know to some extent to be here but we want to know this more and more deeply and that perhaps there is another way But it's very, very simple. Let me read you a little story. A businessman needing to attend a conference in a faraway city decided to travel on country roads rather than the freeways so he could enjoy a relaxing journey. After some hours of traveling, he realized he was hopelessly lost. Seeing the farmer tending his field on the side of the road, he stopped to ask for directions. Can you tell me how far it is to Chicago? he asked the farmer. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer replied. Well, can you tell me how far I am from New York? The businessman questioned again. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer again replied. Can you at least tell me the quickest way to the main road? the exasperated businessman asked. No, I don't rightly know, the farmer again answered. You really don't know very much at all, do you? blurted the impatient businessman. Nope, but I ain't lost. (laughs) 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 So this too is all we really need to know, is that we're not lost present and awake and alive and sensitive in each moment. With the exploration of dukkha, as the exploration of dukkha goes deeper and deeper, compassion is a natural outcome. Because as we explore our own dukkha, as we see our own pain, as we become sensitive to the deep level of dukkha that is present in all human beings' lives. We also can know others' pain. We also can be connected and compassionate with others' pain because we know it for ourselves. It's not just an idea. It's not just wanting to be compassionate. It's not just having great ideals. Compassion naturally arises through the willingness to be sensitive and open-hearted with our own pain. Whether that is in the form of fear, or sadness, or grief, or loneliness, or anger, we can understand others much more fully in understanding ourselves, in the vulnerability that we may bring to our own experience.
1: In the lack
0: of defensiveness, the lack of protectiveness, the openness and vulnerability, we may be able to understand others much more fully and deeply and with much more compassion. Understanding Dukkha also really can motivate us to let go of our suffering, of our dukkha because we can see that in spite of our best intentions and our best efforts, when we are not totally free, when the mind is contracted, when there is fear, when there is any level of dukkha happening in a human being, we do impact others, we do influence others. We have a great impact on others simply through who we are. So, this can be very good motivation, too, is simply seeing that whether we want to or not, we have a great impact on others, and that that if there is any degree of dukkha in us, that is going to make trouble for others in some way or another, oftentimes against our best intentions. But it's just the way things are. Said so that in the Buddhist time he was seen as ever smiling. His contemporaries saw him as a person who was always smiling, and clearly joy is the outcome of this practice. Joy is our companion on the path. Joy is one of the essential factors of enlightenment, and joy is the result of seeing Dukkha deeply. I want to end with just a couple of poems. Um, These were um, Buddhist nuns in the time of the Buddha. It's from the Therigata. It was 25 years since I turned away from home, and I hadn't a moment's peace. I had no peace because I didn't know my own mind. Then suddenly I was shaken with dread, remembering the words of the Buddha. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert and mindful. I have finished with craving. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It is the seventh day since my craving died. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away i have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. And just one more. This is my favorite. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked my bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. Let's just sit for a moment.